Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. production. Good morning. Good morning. I'm I'm back in Utah. I just had my nine day stint in Los Angeles. I woke up this morning. Guess what? It's snowing. No, it snowed before I got here. We got about four oh. inches, but it's eleven degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to winter in Utah. I guess. Yes. So I got home last night, and and you know my driveway's on a little bit of a hill to get into the garage. Mm-hmm. And I had there were like four or five inches of snow on the ground. I couldn't get to, into my garage. <laughs> the car went. <laughs> I didn't. I don't have four wheel drive on my car. I have chains, but I'm not going to put chains on to get in the garage. So I parked outside last night. I was hoping my car would still start this morning. Of course, it did. And then I went and shoveled uh, the driveway so I could get my car into the garage. It's the first time I've shoveled in God knows how long. I was going to say, does it bring back memories? Uh, yeah, and it's it's still nice. It's all new. So it's kind of fun. I think if I did this, like any, you do anything for 30 years, you know, you're not happy about shoveling, but I, I, I did. So, um, I had a really nice time in Los Angeles. I got to see you of course. Well, in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we talked about that. I think last week we did. And then, um, I had three births. That's amazing that in nine days you had three birds. Yeah, I think I talked about one of the breaches because it was, I think I saw you the morning after, but yeah, yeah. Um, I had a head down baby, a water birth, which was very sweet for everybody involved because she'd had a fetal demise at 29 weeks with her first pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So this was her rainbow uh, baby and um, it was really sweet. Yeah, and she went mm-hmm. to, uh, I think, two days shy of her due date or one day shy of her due date and uh, had a really, from my perspective, a really easy labor, had a nice water birth dad caught in the water, leaning over. He wasn't in the water, but it was just really sweet and watching them was exciting. And then the other one was a real interesting story. So a woman I saw in consult the week before when I was in LA, she was breached, but she lived up near Bakersfield in a place called the Hatchapi. Mm-hmm. She was planning to deliver at the Baker Bakersfield birth center, but she wasn't due for another week or so. So I said, listen, I I'm going back to Utah. I can't really drive eight hours to get to Bakersfield in the middle of the night, who knows when. So I just decided that I wasn't going to be able to cover her. So my last day in the office was Monday and I get a call from the midwife telling me that um, they're about 20 minutes from the push birth center in thousand Oaks. When she got to the, um, birth center in Bakersfield, she was eight centimeters. So they drove two hours down to get to Thousand Oaks, kind of hoodwinked me. I didn't really know that she was coming. And oh, but uh, so I, you know, I would left the office. I drove over. When I got there, there were the two feet were hanging out of the vagina already. Wow. And uh, but she needed full on assistance with this one because the baby never descended and started to lose tone. So I had to do pretty much a whole breech extraction. I had to grab both legs and pull the baby down, just like we do in the breech training class that I teach. If anybody's listening who took my class, you know, those feet are sticking out. And just to make things move faster in the class, I just say, all right, let's just get the baby down to the to the belly button and then we'll do our maneuvers. And sort of mm-hmm. that's what I had to do 
and it went great. But it was it was tricky. I mean, it was it was required some skill. I could see very easily how somebody who didn't know what they were doing yeah. would have had a very different outcome. So yeah, you know, it's interesting because I just found out that they're televising um, Angie from yeah. Nebraska's um, court case. I was thinking about watching it, but I haven't haven't delved into it yet. But um, that's exactly what she was presented with: feet hanging out. Yeah, um, we'll talk about that when it's over. Yeah, uh, people have already people have been writing me and asking me about it, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm actually too close to it a little bit. I've I've had some conversations with one of her lawyers, so I'm not going to say anything about it at this point. Got it. But we will talk about it. So, okay, good. That's good. We'll plan. We'll plan well, on that. She, she has great. the best lawyer on the planet. So that's I heard great. I heard people saying that her lawyer was great. Well, you know who her lawyer is. Is it Hermine? Yes. I didn't know that. They didn't mention her name. She is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. And then I got to say goodbye to Alex and Beth and Robin and Milo and his wife, Anna and Juno and uh, my old partner, George. And I took my secretary, Chrissy, out for dinner. And, oh, nice. Um, yeah. I got to see some other friends too. It's not really goodbye. I would be back there all the time, but I, I sort yeah. of am now done. Yes. And, you know, I've changed my residence. I've changed my insurance. I'm saving $2,000 a month on auto insurance. I mean, excuse me, wow. $2,000 a year. Not a month, I was going to say, month. wow. <laughs> not a month. So before we move any further, because I've got a couple things I got to get through, but we got a topic today. We're going to talk a little bit about breastfeeding today with Chelsea, but why don't you just give us a little teaser? Um, I just uh, know that we talk about birth a lot. And so some of the postpartum topics I think would be really nice to cover. Um, And so I brought it up as a topic with you and you're like, I don't know much about breastfeeding. And I was like, okay, I'll bring on a guest. Um, So Chelsea and I have worked together. Um, She was pregnant and you were her OB who scanned her when I was a student. So we met then and then she became a um, lactation consultant in LA and we worked together professionally as well. So I'm really excited to have her on because she's a hoot. Yeah. And you, you didn't have any births this week, I don't think, right? No, I'm waiting. Okay. I'm hoping uh, I go off call on the 23rd of December for my boys to come into town. So um, I'm hoping that this mom delivers before then I have backup, but you know how that is. Yeah. You you'd, like, you'd, you'd like to be there, right? Right. Of course, of course. Okay, yeah. some quick follow-up. Um, I think we talked about in a previous podcast how ACOG sent out a notice to all of us about the oxytocin shortage. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> and, well, I, I said I was going to write them a letter, and I did write them a letter. I think I mm-hmm. copied you on it. and You did? The letter I wrote to them, I said, recently I received an email notice from ACOG regarding a shortage of oxytocin. The word oxytocin was repeated many times. I am concerned that ACOG uses the term oxytocin when they mean synthetic pitocin. I think we all know they are very different. I'm wondering if this was accidental or on purpose. I hope you will clarify this for me. Thank you. Sincerely, Stuart J. Fishbein, Associate American College of OBGYN. So that was uh, several weeks ago. I got an email, I think yesterday, actually, from Mm -hmm. them, which was classic bureaucratic non-responsiveness. Hello, Dr. Fishbein. Thank you for reaching out to ACOG. ACOG released information about the oxytocin shortage in response to the FDA drug notification shortage specifically for oxytocin. ACOG has issued clinical information regarding the oxytocin shortage. Best. ACOG clinical. That's it. That's it. 
Does the FDA, is, are they talking about nasal oxytocin, which is used for, for other things? Or are they actually talking about Pitocin? Because the way ACOG was talking about it in their letter was talking about using it sparingly for induction or for augmentation and trying other things. And so they're talking about Pitocin. They're not talking mm -hmm. about nasal spray oxytocin, which is completely different. So mm -hmm. um, their their response was non-responsive. I'll just leave it yeah. at that. But what do you expect yeah. from what do you expect from an organization that's so big? It's just full of bureaucrats. That's all they know. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm okay. glad you wrote to them though. Yeah, well, I'm obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> we I love you. Help. I can't help it. Okay. <laughs> we, the other thing we talked about one time, we talked about malpractice. And we were talking about something, and I mentioned something like in Florida, I think the doctors can go without malpractice insurance, but in California, in order to have privileges, you can't. I think we talked about that briefly. I got this morning, I got an email from a listener named Louise, who's a midwife in Florida, and I just thought she, she wanted to follow up about it. She said, um, I started listening to your podcast when I was a student in midwifery school and have been a loyal listener since then. I'm now licensed in Florida and have some information about a question you posed on one of your recent episodes regarding malpractice in Florida. While OBs in Florida can choose to go bare, as long as it's posted somewhere in their office, and I believe their patients sign a form that they are aware of this. Similar to midwives in California, we well, have to let people know. Funny, yeah. funny you should say that, because that being said, mm -hmm. midwives must carry malpractice to receive and maintain a license in Florida. Mm, this is true for both LM, CPMs, and CNMs. As a student to be able to uh, student LM to be able to do six months of training in the hospital, I wasn't even required to. I was even required to increase my malpractice coverage to one million, three million, at my own expense because my school had what my school provided wasn't enough. Even though that that same practice, the OBs are going bare. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. As soon as I graduated, I had to purchase a policy of over twenty five hundred dollars, which, by the way, is a lot, but it's not a lot compared to what doctors pay. On mm -hmm. top of fees to sit for boards, $1,200, and apply for licensure, $500, just to be able to begin practicing. It may not sound like a lot for some, but for a midwife just out of school, it can be a lot and can cost and be cost prohibitive for many. Mm -hmm. I'm fortunate that I was able to pay all the fees and begin practicing, but many of the women I graduated with are still not licensed because of this. Anyway, just wanted to offer some info. I love your show and all that you and Bliss do for the birthing community. Thank Great. you. Right. Okay. Salty yep. AF. I have my salty AF water bottle here. <laughs> um, Element is one of our sponsors, LMNT. And they are a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like us. Like us. Right. I love when you say that. It's, I look forward to it every week. It's got electrolytes in it, which is what you really need when you need a, a replenishment, when you're sweating, when you're working out. When you're in labor, when you've been up for 80 hours uh, <laughs> taking care of somebody in labor, yeah. it would have been good. You might have been more refreshed if you would have had your element. And I probably would have. Right. It's really good for those sorts of situations. And it's and uh, it, it's so much better than some of the other drinks which have sugar or other fake sugars or things in them. As you know that I drink. I shouldn't, but I do. So um, and it comes in multiple flavors. Bliss's favorite is uh, uh, mango chili and mine is raspberry, mm -hmm. but it comes in, let's see, I think I got to memorize now, citrus and raspberry, well, raspberry is my favorite and um, orange 
and lemon habanero and uh, watermelon, watermelon, unflavored, unflavored and And chocolate chocolate salt. Right. Anyway, if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com and put in the code word birthing instincts, you'll get a free sample pack with any order. Uh, Please uh, support them as they support the podcast. And we just want to send our gratitude to them. Thank you, Element. Thanks, Element. So we'll bring Chelsea in and you can introduce her. Great. Here she comes. All right. Hi, Chelsea. Um, Hey there. Hey there. Hello. Good morning. Hi, Chelsea. (laughs) Hi. It's so nice to see both of you in one place ish, one place ish on the screen. Hi. Yeah, this That's is right. the new way of being together because, yeah. yeah, Bliss and I are rarely in one place-ish anymore. I know you guys are all over the world and just being amazing. <laughs> so Chelsea has had the joy of working to support physiologic infant feeding for 13 years as an IBCLC in the hospital and outpatient clinical setting and now has a thriving private practice in Los Angeles. Yay for thriving practice. Yay. Um, she believes in breastfeeding as a most natural form of empowerment, the easiest way to help women find their strength and start to hear their maternal intuition. Chelsea has gone on to pursue mastery in connected modalities and provides holistic support to her clients and community as a Reiki master, baby-led sleep and well-being specialist, body-ready method pro, indie birth doula, postpartum specialist, and body work for babies practitioner. Wow, All the that's a lot. <laughs> All the things. Um, most importantly, Chelsea is a sovereign being and an honored mother to four beautiful children, having experienced three transformative home births with her husband's support and has been making, making milk consistently since 2011. Wow, that's a long breastfeeding history too. My tits are tired, but they're still, they're, they're plugging along. (laughs) I feel you. Mine are retired now, but congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. If they could only make electronics that that were that efficient and lasted that long, that would be great. It would be stellar. Maybe we need to put breast milk on the electronics. Maybe that's what we've been missing. (laughs) Yeah, There's no, there's no no planned obsolescence there. Well, there is. Well, there is actually, I mean, menopause and stuff, but yeah. Eventually, I wonder if, uh, I mean, my, it seems like my current tack is like, if I breastfeed long enough, do I just forego menopause entirely? I have no idea how this goes. Um, well, well can I ask, when was the last time you had a period? Oh my God, it's such a good question. I think I've had, over the last 12 years, I've had 10 periods. So it's when, wow. so I'm one of the weirdos. I blame my inbred Polish uh, genes that like, I just don't, I don't get a period back for like a year and a half, sometimes yeah. two, my first yeah. was three years, which wow. I'm fine with because life is already <laughs> um, messy enough over here. Um, so yeah, it's well, been a while. A splash blanket. It would be, I mean, I've got plenty. I've got plenty here. I've got Chuck's pads galore. I just don't know. I don't know when it's going to happen again. And, and the, the joke, of course, is that my husband wanted no children. And I was like, yeah, one or two. And now we're on number four. So I don't think biology is working in my favor um, as far as this one being the last one. I'd like to think that she is, but I, I have no delusions that that. Menopause doesn't start for a long time. I didn't, I in my brain, I was like 40 and then you're done. And then no, so no, okay. actually, the average age in America is like 51 or 52 years old. So, right. Unless you're me and you start super early. But okay. Well, then, bell, yeah. bell-shaped curve. It's a bell-shaped curve. Totally. You know. There's there's that on either end, right? Those fun outliers. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm an outlier again. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about breastfeeding in the early days because um, I think that it, you know, I was mentioning before you came on with us that, you know, we talk a lot about birth, but we we're not yes. talking a lot about the postpartum period. And I think it's really interesting to, cause we have, you know, surprisingly enough, I really thought that this was going to be a podcast that was going to be mainly for professionals. I didn't really know that families were going to be that interested in listening, but we hear over and over and over again about, um, pregnant families who are listening to the podcast. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to talk about the connection between our birth experience mm. and how that might affect the early days of breastfeeding and just, you know, some tips and and stuff of how to make the best of that time, right? Sure, I love that. And also like all of the professionals can also use this information. I think this is like, I, I, I love it. Yes. yes. He's raising his Stu- hand. Stu indeed. <laughs> um, but then like all of the hundreds of thousands of nurses and doctors and doulas and midwives that I've worked with. And I'm like, well, if there's like pieces of this that could be useful for others, then I, I don't see why we shouldn't be spreading the word. So um, yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I, one of the, the reasons I went ahead and did uh, the body ready method in particular, that training, because it's, it's focused on body workers and doulas and midwives and people who are, I'm like, I was just like the lowly boob lady. Like, I don't have any credentials to be here, but I am, but it's interesting because so much of what is happening in the body, even during pregnancy, the space that we make and the alignment of the maternal body and the ability for a baby to grow and to position itself in a way that is optimal for a safe and healthy physiologic birth, right? Like all of those things also impact how this baby on their own, just the baby is going to be able to function on the outside. So where we have families that have very consistent, like me with the four kids, and we've all had, we've had all the same issues with each of the four kids. Um, I have a very interesting body. I, you know, having done all of this, I know why my body's works the way it does and why my babies all position themselves the way they do and how that's going to impact feeding. But if we have a baby who's been engaged since 20 weeks because mom's got a weak ass pelvic floor or something funky is going on and they've been in this position, like we're now going to have them come out and expect them to like do this. Right. And so we've got all of these babies who are maybe in you know, the perfect like belly to body and nose to nipple and the baby is just a cross. Yes. Great. If you've got a kid who is that physically able to do that, most babies are not born loosey goosey and relaxed. They're born in some kind of flexion or stuck position. And so even just working with, with pregnant, I mean, it's so silly, but even just working with my pregnant, my lactation clients, when I see them prenatally, like, have you thought of doing like just these stretches a few times a day or working with this kind of a professional to help make sure that you're you're set up for the best shot at a physiologic birth possible because mm-hmm. all of the ways we intervene with pregnancy in this country and I'm sure everywhere else, but I'm here. So I will complain about here. Um, absolutely put your ability to breastfeed in the toilet that anybody makes it out of the hospital and is still breastfeeding efficiently at a week it is it blows my mind. And it's a lot of work, right? I'm seeing people on average five or six times in that first few weeks, right? It's not like the lactation consultant came in once and everything was fine because an hour and a half and you're, we have a lot to work with. So, um, it is, it is very tricky. Sorry. Yes. Bliss, did you have a, I was going to say, so let's talk about what, let's talk about why you feel like, um, being in the hospital could set you up for maybe having some struggles with breastfeeding early on. So I want to just preface this by saying I have some street cred 
I worked as a hospital-based IBCLC full-time for a decade. I was at uh, a number of the hospitals. Um, actually, Stu, the first time I met you was was at one of those hospitals um, because you were you were with a love you were just an amazing provider there with your with your transfer. Um, the reason it gets in the way is because everything that is done in the hospital is done to, as I'm sure you all know and all of your listeners know, is just is just done to avoid a lawsuit. Nothing is done because it's what's in the best interest, honestly, across the board, um, because it's what's in the best interest of the family. So all of these moms who are coming in for NSTs that are just shoving them into inductions that don't need to happen. We're using all of this Pitocin, even postpartum. Like We might have a woman who delivers in the car on her way here. And then as soon as we get them in, they're pumping her with oxytocin, with Pitocin to prevent a hemorrhage as if that's like an across the board thing, but pumping all of that Pitocin into women clogs up those oxytocin receptor sites. And we need that oxytocin to be received for milk to let down. And so then we've got babies who are a physically and structurally unable to latch because they're like, it's like a concussion. They're the brain is being concussed on the way out many times. Like the way it's being impacted by the movement of the cranial bones are just, I mean, it's a lot of pressure, even on just a perfect physiologic birth, physiologically birthed baby. But if you're in a hospital where we're now adding Pitocin, more force, because that's supposed to fix it, um, and you're stuck on your back and you've had an epidural, so you know blood pressures are wacky and the baby's stressed, because why wouldn't they be? Um, you've now got a kid who's not only physically uncomfortable, but is also probably like, like fight, flight, or freeze. So we're now going to what, like get this kid to wake up and latch? You can't force a baby to, to breastfeed. If you could do that, I wouldn't have a job. Right. Like you can't force them physically to open their mouths. So we're putting everybody in a in a position to be in absolute defense mode. And most of these babies come out and they are, you know, we we talk in the hospital. We know that babies do a recovery sleep type thing for that first 24 hours, kind of across the board. It's it's physiologically it's normal. But the kids who are coming out after a, a, a normally managed, successful vaginal birth in a hospital, those kids are not in recovery sleep. They are shut down. They are in absolute freeze and they stay that way pretty much consistently because they come out and then they're poked and then they're separated and then they're bathed and then they're usually jaundiced because we couldn't get them to eat that first day and everyone's panicking and now they're stuck in a box and there's more separation and then there's force feeding. And this is just like the trajectory. And so when I had, when I had clients and patients who could leave the hospital still breastfeeding, <laughs> like this is you must be some kind of a miracle. It's a miracle because, you know, it took, I, it took an extraordinary amount of work to just get them to do this one thing that they're meant to do. And every time, you know, I'd walk into a room, the baby has been once again, removed from mom and wrapped up and stuck in a box, which by the way, still happens in home births. And I think I'm going to snoo shame a little bit here. Everyone has to stop it with the swaddling and the sticking the babies in boxes. Like they just have to stop. They're not in the womb. Stop making them feel like they're in the womb. They're not in the you womb. You know, you just described to me a whole new cascade of interventions that I actually, you know, that I never thought about because yeah. because when you were talking about like I don't know, we don't get any training in breastfeeding in, in residency program and OB because right. uh, obstetrics doesn't look at mother baby as a unit. They look at Right. Mother with a pregnant baby, the minute the baby's out, it belongs to the pediatric department. It's not my problem anymore. So everything I know about breastfeeding, I've learned from midwives. But but this the way you describe that, it was just, I felt like, okay, it's going to be the Chelsea Bliss podcast. And I'll just go, because <laughs> yeah, it was it was great. It was actually great the way you just did 
just describe that whole cascade of what happens. And my first question that I'd written down was, what happens when a baby favors one breast over the other? And that's the very first thing you brought up um, when before I even, I was writing it down and you were already bringing that up because it's one of the things that I see. So I don't want to interrupt you anymore, but I just no, had please. a comment on the cascade of interventions thing because yeah. that whole thing, it's not even something that I would have even thought about no. um, before today. And nobody really does. So yeah. I, Chelsea, I want to I want to remind you that because we're on a podcast, yes. when you're talking about baby's positioning and stuff, you have to actually describe ah, it because point. they can see you. Yes, yeah, yeah. I can see myself, um, but everybody can't see what I'm doing. Yeah, and yeah. I was and also, I might... oh, go. I was also going to say, could you tell everybody what IBCLC yeah. stands for? Sure. Yes, yeah. Bliss. Did you want me to throw something? Do you want to throw something in? I was just going to tell you after you describe that, I'm probably going to just kind of break down a little bit of what you said, um, sure. so that we can we can. Uh, extrapolate sure some yes. of the points that you made a little bit more yes okay, I, li so I, I like to be contained you guys just <laughs> lead me in the direction and i'll go there so well, an ibclc <laughs> is an international board certified lactation consultant um so it is the highest level of training you can have to work to work with the tits that's the the, the big boss one um i like it because it's international so at the hospital when i said things that were outside of the expected norms of the western medical system i could just be like well i'm an international board certified <laughs> it's not just the us that i serve i serve everybody um so we bring it all in right um and that is and yeah so that's 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 what that means um it's a lot of letters to just say lactation consultant <laughs> Yes, yeah. and and it's not an easy exam, by the way. I've heard it's a very difficult exam to, and a lot, a lot, a lot of hours working with breastfeeding families before you're even licensed. So it was it's like a thousand hours yeah. of working with family. It took. It was. I mean, it was like a five year. It's like a five year process, or at least it was for me, because there's. Yeah. You have to take anatomy and physiology, and you have to do like some basic clinical stuff, and then all the hours and all the training, and the and the kicker is that I can tell you that. What I do now, I was not taught any of that in my training. Like the work that I do now and how it's been cultivated and how it's become a more, it's a, it's a much more holistic approach, which is what I think people need and want. None of that was like, none of it was taught in that training. I'm hoping that's changed because it's been a bit, I'm kind of an old broad, um, but it, I'm not that old. So I don't know how much it's changed, <laughs> but the test is gnarly. You are right. It is a gnarly test. Uh, my guess is it hasn't changed. At all. I'm guessing, right, isn't it 17 years or something? They're like, hey, here's some new, really important best practice. And then like 20 years later, it finally, it finally crosses. So it's talk about another one of our sponsors. <laughs> exactly. And this is a brand new sponsor who I was fortunate enough to meet some of the people that work there when I was at a dinner in Austin, Texas from thisisneeded.com. So Bliss, tell us a little bit about them. Well, you know, what's so cool is Julie, one of the founders was my client. She had a beautiful home birth with me. And I know this company really well because she's in Los Angeles. And Needed is a nutrition company focused on optimal nourishment for mamas. Needed offers the most comprehensive prenatal multi on the market with the best nutrient forms and dosages to help you thrive, not just survive. Not only is this nutritionally complete, but it also comes in three options, a powder, which I really love when they do powders for prenatals because some women don't really like to take pills, especially when they feel nauseous. So they can throw it in a smoothie and get a lot of great benefits. So that I really do love. Capsules or essentials. The founder of Needed are two mamas who discovered through their own nutrient testing that they were extremely deficient 
in the key prenatal nutrients despite eating healthfully and taking a prenatal. They dug into the research and found that they were not alone. 90% of women who take a prenatal vitamin and yet 95% are left with nutrient deficiencies. So Julie and Ryan went to work and redesigned prenatal multi from the ground up with a group of perinatal nutrition and health practitioners. So check them out. They have an amazing line of prenatal vitamins and choline and collagen and all kinds of really great stuff. So check them out. Yeah, I got a gift bag from them and it was filled to the brim with all the different things they have. And once I get my medicine chest in order in the new house, I'll be excited to open them all and start giving the ones that are appropriate for me to try. Yeah, because they have a line for men too now. It's right. Great. And and you know what? There's a lot of variety out there. It's kind of like when you're shopping for shampoo and you look at the shelf and you don't even know where to begin if you don't have a brand that's your favorite. So let's make Needed our new favorite brand and use them. And all you have to do is to go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out. T-H-I-S-I-S-N-E-E-D-E-D.com. And in this case, put in the code word birthing instincts. And you'll get either 20% off a one-time purchase, which is a really good deal. Or you'll get $100 off of a three months or greater subscription. So go to thisisneeded.com and use Birthing Instincts and give them a try. They support us. So we're going to support them. Yay, Needed. Thank you, Needed. So one of the things that you um, that you mentioned that I think is it was really interesting, I mean, also the Pitocin conversation about most people are getting Pitocin um, mm-hmm. and that that can interfere with the oxytocin, which, you know, we, we have talked about for other things like postpartum depression and stuff like right, that. Right. Um, but that's, you know, that's interesting that it's like the beginning of the babies feeling kind of stressed out before they're even delivered. Yeah. 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 Um, but the, the other thing that I wanted to kind of highlight is that in the hospital, if you haven't already delivered a baby yourself, one of the things that you should know is that they will not let you sleep in bed with your baby. It's a safety issue for them. Um, And so your baby, as you mentioned, will be wrapped up and put in a little box. Put in the box. Put the baby in the box. (laughs) Um, It's not inky. What do they call that? No, it's just a bassinet. It's like a stupid box. Bas- it's a plastic yeah. box. It's a plexi yeah. box, plexiglass box that is somehow supposed to be safer for that baby than its own mother. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I mean, if you if you haven't educated yourself or no one's talked to you about this, um, then you know, of course, you're learning about safety for sleeping and all of that from the hospital. Your baby needs to be here to be safe. And um, one of the big things that I find, and I'm not, you know, I'm not working in the hospital most often, um, is keeping that baby skin on skin is what really helps not only make that whole process easier and simplified, but also there's so much physiologically, and maybe you can talk about some of those things that the baby and the mom are exchanging um, in order to not only bond and feel safe, but also, you know, which is the opposite of what you were describing is happening with that baby in the hospital environment. Um, But also, um, you know, helps with that, the early days of breastfeeding, telling the milk to come in and all of those things. So maybe you speak a little to why skin on skin is so important in those first few days. Oh, certainly. And I, I, I will say that there's a very easy workaround and it's the workaround that 
I managed to pull off with every patient I ever worked with who is receptive, which is that in a, in a, in a normal situation, there's going to be someone else there with you. So you keep that baby skin to skin and support person supervises. And so when the nurse comes in and says, Oh no, no, the baby can't sleep there. Dad just goes, yeah, I'm good. Um, I got this. Keep on, keep on. Um, I think it's important for families to know that swaddling is not, we don't do it because it's what's best for your baby. It's not what's best for the baby. It, it inhibits the unwinding of the fascia and the ability for the body to start to come out of this entirely flexed position and find some movements so that they can breastfeed and they can digest and they can begin to develop normally. Um, so that is not what's best for your baby. It is absolutely just so that you don't drop your baby and we don't get sued. That is the only reason, because the only way you can convince a newborn baby to not be near its life support is to inhibit its ability to communicate. And the way we do that is to wrap them up in a straitjacket and stick them in a box across the room. So life support, by the way, when she said life support, she motioned to her chest. I mean, the, right. uh, yes, I'm sorry. So uh, this is this is an analogy <laughs> that I give families and I'll say it now so that, because I, I, I do realize that not everybody already knows all the things in my head. Um, the womb is the ICU, right? And in a hospital, we don't send people home from the ICU. You get to go to a step-down unit. So we trust you enough not to be on full life support, but we need to keep an eye on you for a minute to make sure that you don't need the life support again. And so the, the boobs become the step-down unit. The baby spends nine months in and nine months on, and then nine months near and like 19 years in your house, I think is probably... <laughs> how it goes now but this 20, is 26 26 26 oh damn okay well i mean i hope eventually they start like contributing to the food it's fine um because as it turns out just so that everybody knows your babies don't they don't stop having growth spurts just because they're no longer feeding off of your body they will now just destroy your fridge it's not going to end it never ends um so i think that it's important to, to recognize whether we want it to be that way or not this is how our bodies have des are designed we're mammals this is how we are designed to function your baby is expecting to spend nine months in and then nine months on and so your breasts are the baby's life support. That is where all of their physiology is regulated. It reminds them to breathe being on you. It reminds them to wake up and eat. It does all of the things, regulating the blood sugars and the temperature. It's an important place for baby to be. There isn't an incubator in the world. And I've said this to moms with babies in the NICU. There isn't a box or a drug or a treatment we have in this place that can do anything close to what your body can do for this baby. Not right. close. We try. We damn, we try, but it's never going to happen. It's not possible. You made this baby. There's no way your body isn't going to know what this baby needs. It's, it's just that simple. And so, and I have not, I have not, I've seen, I've said a lot of things over the last 10 years and then, you know, been humbled <laughs> I'd be like, okay, well, maybe that's not true. This still stands true. I have yet ever in 10 years with the thousands of families I've worked at in every possible configuration, been in a situation where the mom's body did not do exactly what was needed for the baby. Right. Um, it's just what it is. So like, sorry, can't make money off of that. I mean, they can pay, pay us if they want to, but I guess that's not going to happen. So I think there's, you know, uh, it's important to know that sticking the baby in the box in a swaddle is not going to help. It's not going to a do anything good for them. It's just going to mean that you won't accidentally drop the baby and sue us. That's really all it is. The biggest issue with the swaddling, and this is, this is where I have there was the most un, un, unteaching, <laughs> unlearning that had to be done with my, my patients in the hospital um, mm -hmm. and even outside of the hospital is that you, you, if you take this baby home and you continue to keep it wrapped up in a straitjacket, 
it will not eat. It won't. Because the earliest signs of hunger are this. It's like a little wiggle and a little, it's just like a, it's like the suggestion of like, mm, there must be food here somewhere. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna turn in that direction. It's not sucking on hands. It's not screaming. It's not being aggressive and frantic. Like the, the you're, you should feed that baby the minute they start to wiggle. And you will not know that they are wiggling if we have them so wrapped up and are inhibiting them being able to communicate, right? Mm-hmm. So having having been in an environment where we were, st- I mean, big, like the whole thing, the minute you get pregnant till the minute that baby's out, it's like separate the mother from the baby, separate the mother from the baby. It's like, a, it is a targeted, that's a whole other podcast, it is a targeted effort to separate the mother and the child, right? That is just, that's unfortunately what it is for a number of reasons. Um, and I think that, you know, I get a lot of babies at three and four days who are now losing weight and jaundiced and what happened. I'm like, well, you just keep swaddling the kid. Like, I know they told you to, but that wasn't for the safety of your baby. So I think that's important for families to know that babies should not be swaddled. They need to integrate that moral reflex. They need to communicate with their families. Literally that startle reflex is meant to remind them to breathe. So I don't know why we're trying to inhibit that. That makes zero sense to me. You can't teach sleep. Um, the, you know, I think that's another big one. Everyone's terrified that if we don't get them on learning how to sleep, it's a physical, it's a biological function. You can't teach a baby to sleep any more than you can teach your kidneys to process urine. Like it's not, it's not how that goes. Either you're you, either you have a setup where the baby can do that physiologically, or we don't. And this idea that we should just keep separating because that's the safest thing for the baby is absolute. It's I mean, excuse my French, but it's batshit. It's batshit crazy. Yeah. So that's um, a lot the, of unlearning. Yeah. In the in the future, this year coming up, because we're because this podcast will come out next year, I think, right, Stu? <laughs> Yeah, it's like I think, two weeks away. So I, I think so because yeah, yeah. it'll probably come out yeah. in January. Yeah. So um I, I wanna also do an episode just on on um co-sleeping because I think that that is also yeah. something that's just it's ter- people are terrified. It's kind terrified. of similar to to childbirth to childbirth. You know, terrified. we just we just terrified people. So um, but one of the things that Stu and I talked about in a previous episode um was the continuous skin on skin versus just having skin on skin. And so what you're describing, Chelsea, which is really difficult in the hospital, but I love the little tip you gave of having somebody kind of supervise while they're sleeping and, you know, keeping watch, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, is that when you get home or if you, if you have your babies at home, um, is to just keep them in bed with you and, and close to your skin. And this is one of the best ways to be able to have success in those early days of breastfeeding and really listening to the baby's cues. Um, And I love that you said too, what did you call it? The first 24 hours, something about restorative recovery, sleep, recovery. Yeah. I always tell people like, you know, I want you to, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, but I usually tell them, you know, after that 24 hour period, until we've gotten in a groove, you will want to wake your baby and make sure that they're nursing every couple of hours. But before that, in the first 24 hours, they really will sleep a lot and it's okay. You don't need to worry. Right. But if they're not waking up by around 24 hours, then you're going to be the one initiating that just to make sure. Yeah, the baby is telling your body how much milk to make and to bring your milk in. And that we have a baby who's survived. Yes, yes. And we have one baby and that, or maybe not, maybe you have two babies. (laughs) Um, And and your babies are giving your body the information of of how to make milk and how much milk to make. 
Um, and so that's something that if you're not able to breastfeed for some reason, um, directly on the breast, then you're going to want to have a way to stimulate yes. that mimic that, yes. um, so that you can, um, your, tell your body that information. And I, I don't know if this is controversial. I woke up this morning kind of thinking about our topic, <laughs> but I don't think that this topic is com- controversial that breast is best. Like breast milk is no, best. It is, it is controversial because it's not best. It's the biological norm. It is the basic shit your baby is expecting to be able to complete their development. This is the outside part of pregnancy. Not breastfeeding is, is an increased risk of all of the things, right? Because that is not the norm. Um, and there's, you know, and this is, unfortunately, we've, we've done this thing now in our society where just so that we don't ever hurt anybody's feelings, we just pretend that things that are not the same are the same just that everybody feels good about it. So like bottle feeding, like breast milk is breastfeeding. It's not, it's not, it's still great. It's great in its own right, but it's not. Yeah. So, so yeah. The, the desire for mothers to get their babies on their breasts is not crazy. It is not crazy. There are structural changes that are needed. There's structural development that is supported by breastfeeding full of full term. Significant mm-hmm. structural development that impacts the rest of your life. But so no, it's not the same. It's not the same. And I think it's like, you know, it's, it's not best. It's what, it's just the basic stuff. It's just the basic thing that we're meant to do. Your breasts take over the job the placenta had. This baby is not done developing. We have an open gut until somewhere around six, six months of age, right? Like we have all of this brain development that needs to happen in this first three months, especially, but certainly that first couple, two to three years, We've got so much happening and the, the body is expecting to get this extra, the extra help from the breast milk because it's food, but it's also all of the other things. It's all of the building blocks. It's all of the immune support. It's all of the, it is not the same, right? Doesn't mean that families for whom breastfeeding did not end up working. Cause I certainly, you know, I've definitely been humbled. I think that first few years as a lactation consultant, we all do the la leche league thing. We're like, oh, just breastfeed the baby more. It'll be fine. Like just, sometimes it just doesn't, for whatever reason, like it just doesn't work out. And in those moments, thank God that there is an option. We've got donor milk and I always recommend that. And sometimes finding that and keeping that on hand is more stress than maybe the family needs. So thank goodness there are options, but let's also yeah. not, not pretend that they are the same. They are not the same. And I think. Right. It's what, and what, I guess I, what I, what I wanted to, to point to, I love, I love the way that you talked about, like, this is what your baby actually needs to finish developing. But I, I, I believe that breast milk, the milk from your breast is the preferred method. 100%. First, 100%. If, you if you can't do that for some reason, then pumping your milk and giving it to your baby in another way. And, and Perfect. we're not going to get into all of that right now, sure. but you definitely should talk to a lactation consultant about yes. the best way to transition yes. the milk that you have from your breast to giving it to a newborn baby yes. to help your success. Right. Absolutely. So giving a bottle early on could be, could be difficult. So, um, and that's where hiring somebody like you would come in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next would be donated breast milk from somebody else. Absolutely. And lastly, yes, we far would go down the line, far down the line. And, yeah, yeah. And we would go to formula and there are different types of formula as well. Um, and, and from my understanding, the ones that they sell in Europe are the best. And if you're needing to do formula, yeah. yeah um, researching how to get that, those sure. uh, types of formula is the best way. Yeah, so I just kind of wanted to talk, you know, to say 
we're talking about this because, you know, this really is like physiologic birth, like having a vaginal delivery, although, you know, that may not be the choice that everybody has. It's good for people to be informed about the benefits for mom and baby to have that physiologic process. And breastfeeding is it's just, the it's, the, it's another piece of it. Like it, it's continued. Yeah. And on, on another level, like if we talk about that, like women's health, just in general, like this is breasts go through a lot of development and not completing that development is actually really risky for women. So not completing this, this loop, right? We started with puberty, then we have breastfeeding. That's the closing of the loop. Like every time you have a period, the soreness in your breasts or your boobs just getting ready to make milk, maybe. I don't know. They're just trying to, is this, the, is, this is it now? And so this is, this is a really important piece for your hormonal health, for your physical health, for your breast health, lymphatic health. Like all of these things are meant to, they're, they're all supposed to work together. And I know, you know, we all, Stu in particular, like we know that the, med- the medical system, at least on, in the West, likes to separate each body part into its own, like, <laughs> like they're somehow existing in a vacuum. Um, and they just don't, these things are all meant to, to kind of work in tandem. And I will say that if we are able to have a baby, a lot of these things can be walked back. It just takes time. Right. So I would say that on average, when I have babies that I'm working with and we, you know, they, the very common thing, because, you know, jaundice is also a potential side effect from the use of Pitocin in labor, just another way to separate. Right. Um, so now we've got all these kids under Billy light. So for those who don't know, jaundice is not generally dangerous. It's a, it's a normal process. There might actually be some protective factors involved, but of course no one is looking at that at the moment. Um, so jaundice is a normal thing that happens when your baby's liver is starting to work for the very first time. Your liver has been in charge. Now you are disconnected. Now baby's liver has to do all the detoxing and breaking down and flushing. And so jaundice is, you know, the, the easy explanation is just like a little bit of a backup of some of the stuff that's breaking down, um, that kind of gets pushed back into the skin. It's like a giant traffic jam into the intestines to get out through the poop. And sometimes it kind of just sits there, it gets reabsorbed or it gets backed up or whatever for a number of reasons. Very common. And it is, it is physiologically normal for babies to have some jaundice for that first week. Um, but in the hospital, of course, everything is a question of like, if this gets worse and something happens and we're going to get sued, just put that kid under the lights. Like we had borderline jaundice. So they stuck my, so they stuck the kid under a billy lamp. And unfortunately, thanks Medela, who made these stupid billy beds, like the way that you, they treat this as they put your sweet baby on their back, which is their least preferred position of all time in a box where they're strapped down and there's lights below them and there's lights above them and they can't be taken out except for 30 minutes to feed the baby every couple of hours and breastfeeding goes to hell. And it's not because the baby suddenly can't breastfeed, but it's because they're like, what the hell? What just happened? Where am I? You know, we're doing all of these things to babies in the hospital that, that maybe don't need to be done. But if we can just have the kind of support on the outside, right? Like you're probably not going to get a lot of help with breastfeeding in the hospital. I just, having done the the hospital thing, I, there was a long time. I was the only one for in a hospital for 300 deliveries a month and a level three NICU. Like, why does that make sense? It makes no sense. Um, I'm just me (laughs) just still only working 40 hours a week. And And you very likely will not get significant help while you're there. Nobody in the hospital is trained to assess for oral restrictions. Um, I used to joke that if not joke, I mean, seriously, if, if I had a chiropractor or an osteopath work on some of these babies before I was called into the room, they might not need me because a lot of what, what you asked earlier, Dr. Stu about, like, you've got a baby who's, who's stuck, like their head is to one side or they can't really get on one breast or the other breast. 
90% of my job in that situation is Tetris. I'm just trying to figure out how we're going to get this kid to do, to do work. Right. And so we're not bringing in all the modalities. Pediatricians are also sadly, they're, they're the ones responsible for the babies in this medical model, but they also have no lactation training. That hasn't changed that. They also get none of it. And, and yes, they play the toe the party line of all well, breastfeed to six months, but then at your very first appointment, they're sending you out the door with a can of formula and not giving you any support, no, no referral to a, to an OT or to a myofunctional therapist or a lactation consultant, right? So there's no real interest in figuring out how to help these babies. So even in that situation where we're kind of, everything is against it working, right? There are a couple of things that can be done um, pretty much by anybody. And so, you know, the first of course is- Before, before you, before yes. you, before yes, you yes, go, yes. I want to, I want to like re rehash a little bit of what you yes. just talked about. Because you could go on the whole hour. And, Sorry. And, and no, no. And I think our listeners want you to go on the whole hour, but contain me, Sue. <laughs> for a hundred years, not quite a hundred years, the medical model has interfered with what would be classic. What you would might call nature symphony. It's a it, nature designs a system that works really, really well most of the time. And for whatever reason, in the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, they they just interfered with just about everything that they could possibly interfere with. And when I was born, my mother got ether. I was pulled out with forceps. I was put in a box, swaddled, along with about 15 other babies lined up in a swaddle, away from my family, and bottle fed. Okay. Um, when I was a resident, you know, 25 years later, um, we were taught that that breast milk was the way to go. We were we were wined and dined by pharmaceutical companies. I mean, not, not breast milk, excuse me. Formula was the way to go. We were wined and dined by pharmaceutical companies. Um, we even had standing orders on the order sheets to check boxes that said, give her Del Estrogen or Del Odumone, which was an injection to dry up your breast milk so you wouldn't get engorged, so you could bottle feed. Mm -hmm. That was the standard in the 1980s. Convenient. That's, that's disappeared, yes. but but still, the idea that all the things you talked about, the how the breasts are the ICU or or the or the you know the nursery when a baby comes out and how skin to skin regulates everything. And mm -hmm. every one of those things is being is sort of ignored in the medical model. Mm -hmm. And what you you know we maybe be you and I might be a little hyperbolic by saying the hospital will never do this or there's no one in the hospital that knows how to do something. <laughs> You know, there are some hospitals are better than others, obviously. Sure. Some doctors are better than others. Some midwives are better than others. It's that's just a given. Right. But we we end up with a situation where we've forgotten that this is designed by, you know, somebody, intelligent design of some kind, that it all yeah. works. And it and if if you have a symphony and you take away the French horns or you take away the flutes or you right. take away the violins, it doesn't sound very good. And this is what they're doing yeah. constantly. And they're trying to then break something and then come up with some machinery or some technology to fix yes. something that they broke in the first place. Absolutely. I just wanted to recap what you said and yeah. in my way. Yeah. And brilliant. I also think, you know, I also think what you're pointing to, Stu, too, is like we just have all of these things that we you talked about in the beginning, the snoo, and we talked about it, we Stu brought it up at the last podcast because one of our listeners had right. talked about it is we create all of these things 
to be modern and advanced and to be convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, but the issue is, is that it causes more problems. And so when you go back to the simplification of putting your baby at your breast, having people bring you food, resting, yes. being able to watch their cues, keeping them undressed just in a diaper on mm-hmm. you um, so that you can regulate and create, it's like, that's like the simplest thing. And we, we make it so complex. And so I think that that's, you know, really, it's so interesting also to hear how, Stu, how you were, how it was when you were born. And then when you came as a doctor and I was thinking about, my mom told me she was a major hippie. And so I was born in the early seventies. Are you surprised? No. Um, Born in the early seventies and she wanted to breastfeed. I was her third baby. And she said that they, she was the only one there who was breastfeeding. I think they must've had them in a, in a bunch of women in the Mm -hmm. same room back then. Um, And so they pulled the curtain around to hide that she was breastfeeding with all these other women who had just had babies, you know? So it's so interesting culturally. And it, it is great that we, most people are wanting to breastfeed. Maybe they're not set up for success and they have chances and they quit early because they don't have the support support. around them. Right. And they, you know, they just think, oh, it's just not working. Right. Um, but most, I, most people I run into, I feel like are wanting, at least they know, have the information to know that this is, um, what's best for them and their baby. Yeah. I think statistically in the U S 90% or so of women want to breastfeed. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's a huge number. I think something like 20% are still breastfeeding at six weeks or something abysmal. <laughs> and I know that it sounds very like Chelsea's a little jaded and she is, I'm not going to lie, but like pediatrics makes no money off of healthy children. Yeah. They don't make money off of healthy kids. Right. And, and you needing to go in. Hospitals make no money off of doing not, of not doing something. Right. No, of course they need to be, it's just very like, we need to do something so that we can fix it and we can be the ones in charge and we're the authority. And it's just like, ah, are you like, you haven't done a great job so far and the boobs kind of fix it all. So I don't know. I think it's, 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 it's not subtle, right? It's not nuanced. And anybody who's listening to, to your podcast, I assume already has kind of got the sense of like what this is, right? I know there's a lot of people who roll their eyes heavily at me and that is okay. Um, but it really you fit is. Right in. You fit I mean, right in. <laughs> that's why I love you guys. Um, I mean, I've only been stalking the two of you for 10 years. So I think there's, I think it's, it's important for families to know though, kind of what Dr. Stu is saying about the history. You mm-hmm. don't understand where we have come from. So this idea that like us wanting you to breastfeed and wanting to support you to breastfeed is somehow being rude or it's being anti-woman or anti-choice is so convoluted. This idea of like mom shaming and the mom wars, it's all manufactured by the formula companies and the formula companies are pharmaceutical companies. They just, it's really just like all of these moms like fed is best. Like, no, fed is what you have to do. If you do not feed your child, you go to jail. (laughs) That is the bare minimum. Like they will take your baby. (laughs) Like you have to feed the baby. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, it's so gaslighty. And it's just like we, 90% of women want to breastfeed 20% or so are still doing that at six weeks. And we're all just going to pretend that that was their choice. Like we're not supporting. Well, what I want to say in, in the home birthing with midwives, that statistic is so different. Mm -hmm. Much higher. So different. And I, yeah, I would say, 
I would so say my statistic is probably, you know, uh, breastfeeding at six weeks is probably 99.9%. Yes. I had a couple of moms who had real anatomical issues, um, challenges mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and, and opted after a while to, to do another, um, source. Some of them were able to get donor milk for a while and some chose to get a formula. But the majority of the time, um, they are breastfeeding for well into the first year, if not not extended breastfeeding. Absolutely. And another thing I would would like to add, another thing is that until I started working with midwives and going to home birthing, I never knew that it was normal for a baby to lose possibly up to 10% of its weight in the first week or so. All right. Um, in the in the hospital, if the baby's there for any length of time and it's losing weight, they're going to be they're going to make a, an issue about it. But it's absolutely. actually physiologically normal. When you want to yes. say something about that, Chelsea? Yeah, absolutely. Your baby was on full life support and fully fluided, <laughs> hydrated, lots of fluids. Like the baby was just not having. To, there was no expenditure of calories. It's it's different. Baby is on the outside now. Um, so yes, it is absolutely normal for your baby and for some babies to lose upwards of 10% and sometimes a little bit more. If we're looking at the whole picture and everything else is kind of working and we're being active in sort of supporting this transition, then I mean, I've seen babies continue to lose until day six or seven and then bounce back to birth weight in three days. Uh, Okay. Like there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, Can you talk about um, also uh, the use of IV fluids in the hospital and how that can affect birth weight and breastfeeding? So yes, I am aware that like the minimal research that exists shows that this isn't the case. I don't, I think that anecdotally, we can all agree that if a mother is swollen, if she has edema in her legs and she's, you know, clearly swollen, right? from fluid retention from all of, from her labor, right? We'll just Uh say from the labor, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the hospital, there was an IV and that is where this is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But from the labor, we see that she is swollen. Um, Mm -hmm. It it stands to reason, I think, to any logical human that that baby was probably also swollen at birth. And the weight we took was within minutes of that baby being out, Mm -hmm. right? So we have about, my feeling is that in that first 24 hours, I believe that there are parts of the world of the, of the, advanced world that don't weigh babies in the first 24 hours, or it's not the first thing they do because there's this expectation that there's, there's some adjusting that's going to happen. Like there's some diuresing, there's going to be some shifting and a much more likely accurate weight is going to be taken at 24 hours, but we take the weight as soon as that baby's out. So mom has probably got some swelling. So baby's probably got some swelling on top of that, all of that poop that's in there, that meconium, that's been accumulating in their intestines for like 20 weeks. So if you've got a kid who comes out and takes three gigantic poops in the first 24 hours, you've, I also poop before I weigh myself. This is not, this is not rocket science. Like they're (laughs) going to weigh less. And so we're looking at all of these factors, right? And because of that recovery sleep, even in a, in a perfect untouched physiologic birth, that baby's still going to be kind of sleepy. I'm like, not entirely with it. Right. And so it's a huge issue. And I, I also, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's equally frustrating because it's not like we're in there encouraging lymphatic drainage. We're not encouraging these moms to do anything to move that fluid out of there. So they're lying in bed. Like the last hospital I worked at cesarean moms laid in bed for 24 hours after their C-sections. And I was like, okay, I mean, I'm just the boob lady granted, but I sort of feel like, like we should be moving 
I don't know. It just feels like blood clots and things like let's move. Let's try to get this out of the way because when there's swelling, you know, at least what I've been taught and have seen is the excess fluids go to the low hanging fruit, hands, feet, nose, boobs. So now we've got additional fluid that is backing up into the areolas, Mm -hmm. making it the tissue is like like an overfilled balloon. It's making that nipple stretched. It's making that tissue unsuctionable, right? Like the baby can't draw it into their mouth because it's so tight. Um, And we have now what, like another day where we're trying to diurese that, trying to get that out of her system and the baby still can't get on. And now we can't get any milk out because we're so so backed up. And the truth is, is that what you do to resolve that is, is manual treatments. You have to move the breasts. You have to move the body. You have to, the lymphatic system doesn't have a pump. It is motion that moves things. Right. And so now we've got a breast that is over full because everything is over full and the tubes, the milk needs to go through is like squished because all of the tissue is swollen. So it looks like she has no milk. And so of course at 24 hours, we're not getting much out. We can't move anything out of the system. The baby can't latch. And that is usually the first place things fall apart. So even just knowing um, on my YouTube channel, I have a very ridiculous video about what to do when the boobs get full or you've got a plug duct or mastitis, like how do you manage, you know, even things like mastitis, which most of the time is not a bacterial infection. Most of it's itis, it's bursitis, it's tendonitis. It is an inflammation. It doesn't mean that it's bacterial, right? We just Mm -hmm. assume it is and throw some drugs at them, right? Um, Which doesn't usually fix the problem, but there are manual ways to do this. And the truth is, is that that's just a completely lost art um, in the medical world. Like being able, even osteopaths, I, I don't know that there are very many who still do manual treatments. Like most of them are doing other stuff, right? Which is great, fantastic, but also not because we need, that's an important piece. But if we admit that doing something to move the breast could improve milk flow, then we have to admit that a pill won't fix it. And everyone probably can, but we're just missing the opportunity to really support them. The fluids are a huge issue. I, I, you know, I'm sure you guys have talked about this ad nauseum, but I think it's important for families to know that you can refuse anything. You literally can just, they'll fight you and they will gaslight you and they will be schmucks about it, but you can say no. You can say no to anything. They might even but, offer I mean, to send is, you home early just to get you yeah, out of there. This right? is just another another um, piece of information to say, like, you know, you might not have thought about how um, saying no to an IV or saying no to Pitocin or saying no to an induction right. or saying yes to a vaginal delivery might affect your postpartum sure. and your breastfeeding Absolutely. career. So this is great. Um, Stu, did you have a question on your tongue? No, I was just thinking about the swaddling thing again, too. And, you know, how we when we're when when we do a home birth, we ask them to keep the room warm. We have them skin to skin and we ask them during the daytime to go by a window, yep. you know, and give the baby some direct sunlight, or indirect yeah. sunlight. And when I'm thinking about putting a baby in a snoo or putting or swaddling them or whatever else, or you got to have a hat on them. Um, not only are you, you know, is are you losing the skin to skin, but you're also losing the vitamin D and the yes. breakdown of bilirubin yes. that you get from uh, indirect, even indirect sunlight. So right. you can't yeah. do that when they're not when they're not naked. I mean, you got to have a diaper on them, I guess, because you don't want them peeing on the. Well, you could put them on on uh, one on of a, our lovely splash blankets. Yeah, or yeah. You can have them on a splash totally. blanket. Yeah. Right. Totally. Right. Yeah. Which is almost the better way to go because then you know that they peed or didn't, and then we have a better indicator of. Hydrated? Did something come um, into you? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you because we, um, gosh, we could we could 
I know Stu was like, what are we going to talk about? But we could talk about I know, so it, many I, things. I'll tell you. Get into dysfunctions <laughs> and stuff that. too, which we're not going to do. But sticking with the early um, success for breastfeeding yes. early, yeah. what are some of, you know, obviously you and I aren't big on a lot of products, but a lot sure. of products are pushed at women. Sure. Um, and so what do you think are the essentials that you would recommend that someone have on hand to make sure that they, um, you know, because it's if you have chap chap nipples or you're sure. you know, don't have a good latch and you're having pain, you don't want to wait for Amazon to deliver no. that the next day. You no. want it like, oh, I thought of this and I have it. Yeah. Here. So what are your like basics that you would recommend for people? Um, God, there's not a lot. Um, I yeah, I definitely think that it is important to have a good pump ready to go. Yeah. If we have a baby who cannot latch, yeah. um, for whatever reason, I you know the 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 most important thing is to pre- protect milk production, protect the supply um, while we get baby fed, because sometimes we just, those two things are not working in tandem. We have to do both at the same time. Um, I think that like having, this is what you need to have. You have to have a chiropractor you love who can come to you in the first 24 hours. You need to have a lactation consultant you love that can come to you in the first 24 hours. Um, and you need to have a spoon. You just need a spoon. We do most of the supplemental feeds in those first few days with a spoon. Um, I know that like the periodontal syringes are very popular. Um, certainly they were with me at the beginning of my career, but just because they're so hard to clean and they collect bacteria and they're not meant to be reused. I've moved away from them. I, I personally prefer spoon feeding because everyone's got a spoon. Everyone has yeah. a spoon. They're easy yeah. to clean, easy to use. Um, I don't know. That's That tends to be the way the entire rest of the world even like NICUs all over the rest of the world. Like that's how they feed the babies. Um, so I've moved towards that. So having a spoon is useful. I don't like boppies. So this is just a personal thing for me. I don't think most of us need a breastfeeding pillow. Most of us should be trying to breastfeed in a biological position, meaning we are leaned back and baby is on us sort of in a prone position, um, or working on sidelines so we can get off of our bottom and our sacrums and actually heal a little bit. Um, but for my last baby, um, my fourth humbled me. She was the only baby who came before 40 weeks and she was the floppiest. I couldn't put her face down on me because I wasn't sure that she would, she wouldn't suffocate. Like she was the first of my babies to be quite that, quite that chill. Um, so I was sitting up a lot and and I didn't have any tearing. And so it was a very easy recovery. So I could sit up. So I, I prefer the, my breast friend pillow. If you're going to get one, find it used, get it off of somebody like don't waste your money you'll only be using it for a couple of months at most um but i do you know like those are my own preferences i I just little things that seem to work better for families but otherwise i don't really i don't feel like there's i almost feel like it makes more sense chop nipples breast milk does the job breast milk does the job you squeeze it out you put it on you just that's if you are already experiencing chop nipples in the first day or two you should already have called the lactation consultant and we should be already figuring it out. When I come to homes, I have on hand all of the things you might need to use so that you don't have to run to Target and try to figure it out. Um, I do often, you know, I do think again, having the pump ready, but also having learned how to hand express, like they are your tits. You should know how to work them. And it is really important because colostrum, uh, which is just milk, but it's like the fancy milk. It's like condensed milk. It's the milk without all the pesky water because the baby is hydrated. 
don't need any more water, right? They don't need that right now. Um, but it doesn't flow very well, right? So for most women, pumping is a useless endeavor in the first couple of days anyways. Um, so knowing how to remove milk with your hand is a critical skill. If women can get milk out of their breasts in the first hour after birth, we can see whether that's by baby or by hand or whatever, we can see mature milk begin to come in by the end of the first day. This is a really important thing. I've been, I had a couple nurses at the last hospital I worked at who I loved and would call me after, you know, a cesarean and baby's going to NICU because of course they are. Um, and I'm coming, you know, they'd call me, it's like two in the morning, like, can you just come and express her? And I would just come down and hand express. I wasn't even collecting it. I wasn't worried about that. I think of like the breasts as like a gas tank. I just need to get the level low enough to whatever it is needs to be to trick the sensor to start the refilling. That's all I need to do. So we're just trying to get things moving. And we would see with those moms we could get anything out because of the swelling, <laughs> all of the fluids. Um, we could see milk transition over to mature production within a day or two versus three to seven or whatever Google is currently suggesting is normal. Yeah. So I normally recommend that someone take a breastfeeding class. Um, how yes. do you feel about that? I teach a breastfeeding class. So I absolutely think that that needs, that should be part of the plan. That should yeah. be what you do. If you can see there are, there's a great um, system called the lactation network. So for anybody who's got a PPO insurance, most PPO insurances, um, I could see you 14 times. It wouldn't matter if I, if the clinician says we need more services, more appointments, they just approve more appointments. It is not like this is outside of the realm of, of capacity. So if you can see a lactation consultant beforehand, get sized for flanges. I don't know who's 24 size nipples, 24 millimeter nipples are the ones that pumps decided were standard. I have not met that bit. It's been 13 years. I have not met those nipples. Maybe like come close. I haven't met them yet, right? Most of us are 17 or 19. Make sure you have the right equipment. Make sure that we're prepared to actually do what needs to get done. So if you can see someone lactation, we all do prenatal lactation consultations. Every last one of us, it's my favorite. Get to see mom through this entire process, right? And then they don't need yeah. to anymore. It's a little bit sad, but it's also like, yeah, we did it, right? So you can be prepared. I mean, I've had dads, you know, moms who have worked with prenatally who ended up having a cesarean unexpectedly where dad was like, oh, I was hand, she was on the table and I was just hand expressing. I was just like hand expressing her because we couldn't get the baby. Great. That's what we need to do. We need to get the milk out around the same time. The placenta is, is when that progesterone drops, we need milk coming out. And that is what's going to start to move things along. So even if that's all we can do, right? Yeah. Stu, sorry. I like rambling. No, I, well, I, I want to, for the sake of time, um, I want to talk a little bit about engorgement. And yes. I want to talk about like the midwives always in our kits, we have phytolaca, which is a homeopathic Great. remedy yeah, love and it. for engorgement and about the rare cases of true mastitis and um, how you differentiate the two and what how you would sure. treat it early versus the call I get sometimes from, from midwives after they've been trying to treat it for a day or two. Can you yeah. prescribe yes. antibiotics? So could you talk a little bit sure. about that? Absolutely. So engorgement, just so that everybody knows, clinical engorgement is like rock hard boobs. Like you could, you could knock on them. Fullness is not engorgement. Sometimes things will get full and feel kind of achy. That can be very normal, especially if you're a multiparous woman and you've had multiple babies and the girls are just being dramatic because you make 20 to 30% more milk with every baby just by existing, right? So it's certainly, that. sorry? I didn't know that. Oh, That's oh. a fact I didn't know. That's oh, great. yes. It's why we have so much more luck with the with the old broads and with the, you know, <laughs> the, the primips. We're just like, can we just get enough? It's, it's new. Your body hasn't done this before, right? So when you've, when your body has created more lobules to make more milk, it's 
just stands to reason that you'll just have more of it the next few times. Um, But engorgement really happens when milk is not being removed efficiently from the breast in those first few days. It can happen at any time, um, but that's more common in the beginning. A lot of that also has to do with the fact that there are muscles around the sacs that make the milk that have contractions, like respond to oxytocin and have contractions when your milk is flowing. And all of that for first timer in particular, like those muscles have never worked before. And so your lymphatic system gets a little bit like, holy hell, what's going on? Engorgement is yes, more milk, but it is also mostly congestion. It is increased blood flow. It is lymphatic fluid that is stuck. And so the way we work this, and please don't laugh at me, but you're going to have to move the girls. So we usually have moms start by like, like literally holding the breast like a sandwich a little bit and pulling it a little bit away from the chest wall and just doing this, like up and down. We're just, I'm, the, I'm, yeah, for those who are listening, describe, yeah, I'm moving describe, my boobs around. Yeah. So you hold the breast and you pull it gently away from the chest wall. And then you're just gently going to kind of move it up and down and side to side and round to round and around. It's absolutely goofy. Um, you guys, I'm happy. I'm always happy to share my ridiculous videos. If someone needs it. Um, but anytime you start to feel achy, even if they do feel full and it's uncomfortable, if you think you might have a plugged duct, if you think there might be some itis in there and some inflammation and some stuckness, the first thing we have to do is move it. It's like a like a those glow sticks. You got to crack it, get things moving and out of the way. Mm-hmm. Once we've done that, we do start to move like almost like gua sha, like you have lymph nodes under your armpit and in between your breasts. Those are like the drainage system. So we've moved the things around, broken up the fluid, and then we're just gently going to try to scrape. Not, I don't want to say scrape because it's not the right word, but we're using like a gentle, like the karate chop of your hand to just gently move, just to slide across the breast up into those arm, into that armpit or into the center of the breast. And then we start trying to hand express, right? So we remove lymphatic congestion and then we try to move milk out usually the, the fun part of this too, is you can start with like an Epsom soak. There's a, there's a couple of different steps that, that go with it. Um, we no longer apply heat to the breasts. Heat increases inflammation. I don't know why anybody mm-hmm. would want to do that with an angry boob already. We don't apply heat to the breast. So that is not what I want you to do. And we do not aggressively massage the breast. So we do not take the vibrator and jam it into the boob, hoping that that's going to fix it. That is only going to increase the problem. Most of the time, if a mom calls me and she's like, you know, Righty's feeling kind of funky. I just don't know if we just start doing this affectionately referred to it as the boob flow, start doing the boob flow, right? I always start them on phytolaca because I don't think that's a bad idea. There's a couple other homeopathics that I also um, recommend. And we talk about how to use it because it's different for every, you know, the way we're going to administer that is going to be different for any number of reasons. Um, And usually within 12 to 24 hours, I mean, I can, I can say that if it's done the way it's meant to be done within 24 hours, your amazing, incredible, perfectly capable body will have cleared that, whether it's a bacterial based infection or just some junkiness. So getting, getting and the other thing, the other thing I would say on top of that is get into bed, rest, Rest. hydrate, hydrate. (laughs) you know, if you're not in those first few days and you were overdoing it a lot yeah. of times I didn't get mastitis until my third baby mm-hmm. because I just had to get up and start taking care of other children. Yeah. Um, but you know, if you, that's the first thing is that right. your body needs to recover Absolutely. and to be able to heal itself. So you need to just really take very good care of and yourself. And I think too. it's, Im- Sorry, it's important to mention really quickly that the majority of mastitis cases are not just because you didn't empty the boobs well enough. It's because you did too much. Yeah. The holidays yeah. there it's like inductions and mastitis. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's what's happening. November through January 2nd, everyone's got mastitis and everyone's being induced. It is just, it is stress, right? So just exactly what Bliss said. The first thing we do is rest, hydrate, immune support, empty the boobs. We want you to breastfeed, but we also like this idea we used to have that you just keep pumping, keep pumping, keep emptying. That just drives more production. If we're not addressing where that blockage is, then it's not, it might be counterintuitive, but we want to make sure that we're being efficient. So are you pumping with a 24 millimeter flange and you need a 17? Like that's inefficient. That is going to cause potentially some issues. And so we just make sure that we have the right, we're doing things as well as we can. And exactly what Bliss said, we just lay down, just lay down, just lay we down. Used to, and we used to tell people to get in the shower and take a warm shower, but you're saying that heat really isn't. So I don't dislike a shower. What I don't like is heat being applied to the breast, Okay. right? Which is still a thing. Like people are still doing that. It's colostrum does not need to be loosened up. It's not necessary. What heat can do is put the body in a state of being more responsive and more receptive to oxytocin the same way we know in birth. If mom is in a cold, sterile room, things aren't going to flow as well. If she's warm and she feels relaxed, then of course things are going to move better. So sometimes that's maybe got that placebo-ish effect, right? It's not necessarily what's causing the milk to flow. Deep breathing is important. Like really, we need your nervous system to calm down, right? Because if your nervous system thinks you're in danger then everything that is not essential stops, and making milk is not essential to the mother's survival. It is essential to the baby's survival, but it is not essential to the mother's survival. So even teaching women how to breathe, do you know how to breathe through your nose? <laughs> Does your tongue stay up? Like, are you actually stimulating that vagus nerve? Are we doing the things that we need to do to tell your body that it, there's not a tiger coming for you? It's not life or death. It's going to be okay. But a lot of the things in our lives, like bills feel like life or death. We have the same reaction to, to like, you know, student loans calling me for the 47th time, I'm still not paying them. They can suck it. But I still have that response as if I was being chased by a tiger, right? So we have a right. very skewed sense of we're already stuck in sympathetic overdrive, most of us, before becoming pregnant. Um, and so even something as simple as teaching a mom to like visualize like waterfall breathing the, the, from, from the sacrum, you've got this beautiful milk waterfall coming up your spine and out the boobies. Like it's just this, we really just need to teach moms and help moms breathe and be able to connect. Their bodies already can handle this. I, I think it's a it's a very rare occasion where we really need to intervene so intensely. I've never seen I've never seen thrush, just so that you know, in 13 years. I've never seen actual thrush. I've seen a lot of people treated for thrush when it wasn't thrush. Um, and I've also never seen an abscess. So all of these like big scary stories are like, oh, I don't know. It's been a long time. I've been doing this a long time. And yeah, I've never yeah, seen it sounds so, it sounds so similar to you know what we talk talk about with birth too because there's all these terrifying things and you're like yeah, it's so rare yeah, you know it's never so, so i'm so sure rare. it's out there but i've never yeah. seen it yeah, <laughs> yeah i see far less i see far less pathology since i've been in the home birth world than when right. i when i had hospital when i was doing hospital birthing sure like you sure. just described at the very beginning of our conversation there's it's just there's far less problems when you're not inter interfered with all the time right just yeah. let the body well, do what it needs to do this has been such an amazing conversation and um the last thing I wanted to um, ask you about, because I know, you know, from working with you in LA that your heart is really about, you know, making um, this available to people who may not really have the funds yeah. to be able to do that. So 
Because I know one of the things you said is a necessity is to have somebody available in the first few days. And that's just not financially possible for everybody. So can you give them some resources that you would recommend for people if they're just not able to to hire an IBCLC or, you know, like what's available? I think the first thing to note is that most of us will work with you. If, if you come to me and you're like, I really need help and I, this is what I can pay you. Like, I will probably find a way to work with you. I personally have a scholarship fund um, that many of my clients have donated to so that I can take families on that are low income or, or really are just struggling. There's a, a lovely um, organization called New Familia. Um, they are based in East LA, but they do, I mean, five or six support groups a week. Um, so lactation and prenatal and postpartum and they kind of just try to create the space which for a lot of moms i mean whether it's you know the world has shut down for silliness or not um getting out of the house in that first few weeks is kind of a no-no in my like my postpartum doula clients aren't allowed to even consider it like i just there's a piece of that that is really important um but they are wonderful because they they really do make it available to just it's a free service that anybody can can kind of be a part of it um, Which is great if people are in LA, but you know, we have people from all over. Well, it's virtual. It is virtual. Oh, so you can oh, check right. in from anywhere, right? So all right. of their, all of their services are, are all of the support groups are, at least as far as I know now are, um, are over zoom. So it's absolutely great. something that, that you could, um, tap into. I hate to say it, but I think the, I think Instagram has, if you, if you find the right places, you can get really quite a lot of good support. Um, and so, I mean, I have a number of people that I love and, and follow and refer folks to, and I'm happy to make a list and just send it your way if that could be helpful. Yeah, we could put it in the show notes and obviously right. links to your YouTube and your Instagram so that people can find all you. And um, my boobs all over the interwebs. <laughs> <laughs> and um, any last things that, you know, maybe we didn't cover that you want to make sure that people know about? I mean, I think that it would, it's just important to know that, that you're not supposed, yes, yes, babies are meant to breastfeed 100%. And it is, breastfeeding is not as intuitive as birth. It's not because breastfeeding is a learned behavior, right? It's a learned activity. And we don't live in a world where, I mean, bless your mom was, was, was isolated and shamed. Um, so like, we don't live in a world where we really see breastfeeding happen. We don't grow Mm -hmm. up watching women do this. We don't get that, that monkey see monkey do. We don't get to do that. Right. And so I like to tell moms that it's going the, the fourth trimester. This is still pregnancy. Expect it to take the fourth trimester to master this. Do not expect it to happen tomorrow. If it does fantastic. But I think for most of us, the truth is it doesn't really feel intuitive until we get past sort of the intensity of that initial postpartum, right? Certainly six weeks, but I, I, I caution people against feeling like they can't, that they wouldn't be able, if it didn't work initially, that it's not going to, right? Or that it's not worth the trouble. If you want to breastfeed, you do not have to explain to anybody why that is. You don't have to give justifications for what, this is insurance, right? Like you, you want to trust either yourself and rely on your own body to provide for your child for a year, or are we going to trust the formula companies that couldn't even keep their shit together long enough this year to not have two shortages? I just feel like it's more about making sure that moms know that this is an insurance policy and it's not going to happen right away. And it is worth investing in. It is absolutely worth investing in the long-term impacts of having 
the ability of your baby having the ability to receive all of the nutrients and all of the support that they need is priceless. And it will keep them out of the clutches of the medical system and the pharmaceutical companies because they won't yeah. need them. You know, right? it's funny, yeah. like we like we tell people that they should invest in their birth and they, they should look at it as as not just a medical yeah. procedure. What you just said is is, is fascinating because if if they can't afford a lactation consultant, which I understand that happens, sure. but then they have problems breastfeeding, then they're going to have to buy formula. So You're still going to pay the money. Like it's going to cost yeah. you right. tens of thousands of dollars probably to get this kid fed. Um, and then you're still going to have to foot the bill for all the doctor's appointments for all the things. You know, I'm a very small sample size. I am the only formula fed child in my family. I got all the things. All the things are me. I have all the things. The other two could... I don't know. They could they could smoke crack until the cows come home and they still manage to have perfectly functional jobs and no health issues. So it really is. I hope they don't. That would be a terrible idea. But the, the point being that their foundation is so well established. Right. That first five years is so critical for every piece of development that is still an infant. Right. And so to be able to give this gift to your child, you don't need to explain it away. You don't have to be like, well, but, you know, if it doesn't work, like no woman in the world is going to say, well, if I can't make breast milk, then I'm just not feeding the baby. It's like saying the only thing that matters is a healthy child. It's so stupid. It doesn't make any sense. No woman in the world is going to be like that. That's a logical conclusion. You, It is okay to say, this is important to me. I want to make this work and I'm not going to apologize for it. And if it doesn't work, then I work through that. Then it's okay. Then it's fine. Yeah. But you throw everything at it that you can up front. And so when people ask me like, what should I buy? And I'm like, find a chiropractor. Uh, save your money. There should be an after the birth fund because yeah. you're going to need all of these things and sure. everything you spent all that money on that you are not going to use. No one is using a bassinet except for as a laundry basket. No one's using it. All of that stuff you spent money on could have gone towards actually supporting you with a postpartum doula, with a lactation consultant, with body work. It could have done a lot. And so sometimes the argument, I mean, there are certainly people, and I do work with uh, low-income families. I work in many different places. Um, and I do my best to be as accessible as possible, but like Stu said, you're going to pay for it one way or the other. And so if you're prepared yeah. to pay for it up front, you know, you, you, it's a heck of a lot easier. Um, once you hit the end of that fourth trimester and you can just whip out a boob and fix the problem, you know, it, it, I'm a terrible parent. It's my only trick. <laughs> like it just, I'm a lazy, lazy parent. So this is, you know, it, it, it makes sleep. It makes development. It makes illness. It makes all of these things so much easier with children in childhood. And I, I just think that we make it very hard for ourselves in this culture. Yeah. We don't really need to. So I agree. Well, yeah. thank you for being here. It was lovely to hear all the wisdom that you have to share. And like I said, we could, we could talk about these topics for hours, but yes. I think this is a great beginning and, um, and we'll make sure and link all of your information in the show notes so that people know how to find you. Thank you guys so much. This was such a dream. I appreciate it. Yeah. Welcome. You're Thanks, welcome. Jessie. So you're welcome to drop off. We're just going to wrap up the podcast. Right. Thanks for being our guest. Mwah. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> so I got some big yeah. news. I got some big news for you that I was saving. Um, I'm going to be a grandpa. You are. Yeah. Who's yeah. pregnant? Um, my son, Alex is. Oh, that's so exciting. I could cry. Yeah. And we're going to have tonight, tonight, they're going to have the sex reveal. Ah, uh, well, congratulations. So, so by the time amazing. this comes out, it'll, it'll be old news, but it's exciting. Uh, now. 
I'm so excited. Yay. Um, that is amazing, Stu. Congratulations. Yeah, I've been getting I've been getting uh, little videos of all the ultrasounds that they've been having, and I've told them to stop having ultrasounds. Exactly. <laughs> you don't need it anymore. Well, I hope, I hope she's the kind of uh, daughter-in-law who, who is open and receptive to what you have to offer. Well, I would just have to say that that, that interview turned out to be like, like I said at the beginning, I wasn't sure what was going to be what we were going to talk about. That was fascinating for me. And there's, it's, um, I mean, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago, everything that I, that she talked about today. But, you know, you keep learning, you keep getting better. So I, I'm just, yeah. uh, I'm thrilled about the Great. fact that you brought her on as a guest. Thank you. Awesome. No problem. Um, so maybe I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Sounds oh, like we yeah, we'll, 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 be, we'll be texting pretty much every day anyway. But but um, I just want, I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Element, uh, Splash Blanket, and uh, Needed. And yeah. uh, so support them again because they support us. And until next time, Bliss, when we cross, I know it'll be afterwards. But for now, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Love you. I love you, too. And happy birthday to Sky. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a great holiday season. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 